You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Uh, so thank you all very much for coming out tonight. This is a great crowd uh, for the first uh, of a series of actually six talks we'll be holding here at the Hub uh, to commemorate the centennial of the year 1918 in modern European history. So in this series, we're going to examine the significance of 1918 as the beginning of a new European order from the perspective of the collapsing Habsburg Empire and five of its successor states, so Czechoslovakia, Romania, Yugoslavia, and Hungary, Poland, which were forged territorially, culturally, and politically by the peace treaties that followed. Uh, my name is Molly Pucci. I'm one of the organizers of the event. I teach 20th century European history here at TCD and direct the MPhil in international history. Uh, so before I introduce our speaker for tonight, I want to thank several people who have helped make this event possible. Uh, my two co-organizers, Balash Apoor, uh, who's head of European Studies, and Graham Murdoch, who's also in the Department of History. And of course, the Trinity Long Room Hub, uh, in particular Jane Olmeyer, Francesco O'Raffertry, and Katrina Curtis uh, for supporting the event and helping me sort out the many logistics to make it possible. So I've, I've been asked to say a few words about the Hub and its mission in humanities. Uh, so the Hub is a research institute in the arts and humanities that celebrates the excellence of the arts and humanities at Trinity. And it promotes conversations in and across disciplines, as well as the public humanities. So aimed at events like this one uh, that are promoting, uh, promoted in academic as well as public audiences. So this lecture series we're kicking off today has been organized by uh, the Department of History, the Department of Russian and Slavonic Studies, as well as the MPhil in International History. And it runs until March 2019. Our next talk will actually be um, on November 2nd, in the same time and place. You'll see all the uh, talks listed online. Um, and sort of without further ado, I'll introduce our speaker for tonight. Uh, so this is Alexander Watson, who's a professor of European history at Goldsmith University of London. His current research focuses on conflict and identity in East Central Europe, particularly the social, cultural, and military aspects of total war. He's written extensively on these topics and on the era of the First World War in particular. And he'll be speaking today on his latest book, Ring of Steel, Germany and Austria-Hungary Austria at War, 1914 to 1918. So his talk tonight is titled, Without Any Revolution and Riots, The Quiet Collapse of the Habsburg Empire, 1918. So if you'd join me in welcoming Alexander. Thank you very much for all coming. Can I just check? Can you hear me at the back if I talk like this, or is, is that a problem? Is that okay? A yeah? little louder, maybe. A little louder, okay. All right. There's a microphone as well if we need it, but I'd rather move around. Um, now that you can all hear me, and I've established that, I want to begin by saying thank you very much. Thank you to the organisers for inviting me, and thank you to all of you for giving up an afternoon and evening to, to come near me. Um, we're going to talk, as you've heard, without any revolutions and riots, the quiet collapse of the Habsburg Empire. And I want to begin with a quotation. The armistice offer of the central powers conformed completely to the wishes of the entire population. There is not a single case to record in which a letter writer of any nationality, be it at the front, be it at home, has expressly spoken out for a continuation of the war. Only here and there worries are expressed about Wilson's conditions being too hard. And then the addition of an unhopeful, what then? The 31st of October 1918 was a wet and windy day in Krakow, today in southern Poland, on this day for the last day in Western Galicia, the Habsburg province of Western Galicia. All good stories start on a wet and windy day, so why should this one be any different? It was as uh, the long-term resident, 79-year-old Alexandra Chekhovna said, a very important and genuinely historic day for Krakow. Now, despite her age, 
years. Alexandra Chekhovna knew what she was talking about. She was a very sharp observer. She'd, uh, had a, she'd, she'd followed a diary, she'd pursued a diary ever since 1848. And we, we have those diaries chronicling Krakow right through those decades, right through into and beyond 1918. She was also a prolific reader, and she was aware, at least as far as one could be at the time, of the massive changes sweeping across the empire that had ruled Krakow directly for the last 60 or so years and indirectly for over 100. She knew about the demonstrations in Krakow. She knew about the great changes. She added gleefully a joke, uh, of course, in German, because this was the Habsburg Empire, and if you were educated, then you should speak at least two languages. And she wrote, war noch sinking, so they once were, now they're gone. Holweg, Hötzendorf, Hilfreich, these are all uh, German and Austrian statesmen and generals. Hoffmann, Hohenlohe, Hindenburg, Husserlech, Hintz, Hume, Habsburg, Hohenzollern, the two imperial families that ruled the Habsburg Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and Germany. Even so, although she was aware of these vast changes sweeping across the old empire, what took place on the 31st of October in, in Krakow um, took her breath away. Um, it was all so sudden. She said um, in her diary, the Austrian eagle was discarded and the Polish was put up. And she meant that both literally and metaphorically. On the 31st of October, Polish troops and the nascent Polish government took control of the city. And it was literal as well because one of the phenomena that took place in was uh, on this day was that Habsburg eagles, the double-headed double eagle of the imperial family, was torn down, and the soldiers put up uh, put up Polish eagles in their place. On the uh, on the ancient clock wall in the market square, there were Polish banners. You can see here unfurled, showing that this was now a truly Polish city. The old watch, which is kind of just to the left of this picture, you can't see it. Um, was taken over by Polish soldiers. The Austrian garrison, the Habsburg garrison, was relieved, and troops owing their allegiance to a new Polish government took their place. And there were crowds too, not violent crowds, but happy crowds, enthusiastic crowds, singing Poland's national anthem, Polska jeszcze nie zginała, Poland is still not dead. And all this, she wrote with amazement, was achieved without revolution or riot. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, one of historians' privileges, these ones' privileges, we, we know a bit more than Chekhov did about what exactly had taken place. On the 28th of October, three days before the events that I've just described took place, Polish representatives of the Austrian parliament, the Reichstag, had gathered in the city, gathered in Krakow, 60 of them, it was a very large gathering, in order to set up what became known as the Polish Liquidation Committee. The committee uh, whose sole purpose was to liquidate Habsburg rule in Galicia. They had appointed a, uh, a military leader, Brigadier Bolesław Roya, in order to carry out the coup that was planned. Um, and also an executive committee. This man was one of the four members, Count Alexander Skardek. Now, now on the 30th of October, two days later, this committee had attempted, by way of preparing the ground for the coup, to spread news and spread the allegiances of what was going to happen. Um, it had won over the uh, chief of police in the city, the civilian chief of police, and also, a meeting was called at the ancient university of Krakow, the Jagiellonian Krakow, to which all state and city officials were invited. And these officials debated together, and they decided that they should owe their allegiance no longer to the Habsburgs, but to the government in Warsaw, the Polish government in Warsaw, which had declared an independent Poland on the 7th of October, three weeks before. So, You've got the National Council, you've got its military arm, led by Roya, and 
it also had the support of the local municipal administration as well, and the police. On the following day, 31st, the coup began, <coughs> 5 o'clock in the morning, um, Roya's men quickly attacked the, uh, uh, the barracks to the south of the city, um, surprised using Polish soldiers who were stationed there to help them, the Germans and Czechs who were garrisoned <coughs> there, um, trying to persuade the Czechs to join them, largely successfully, um, interned the Germans, which really meant shutting them in a room for now, and then marched into the city centre, um, unscrewing in a pretty orderly way these double-headed eagles and putting up their own eagles. Um, the Krakow military commander, Krakow was a fortress city, it had a big garrison, it had forts all around it, so it was an important military place for the Habsburgs. The Krakow military commander was powerless. Uh, at 8.30, Polish officers in his command had uh, taken over his building. He went to the city council at 10 o'clock to try and find out what was going on, and he phoned the police and said, what are we going to do? And the police chief, of course, was already on the other side, said, too late to do anything. Elements of yes minister here, I think, as you know that. Um, and when he got to the city council, Scarbeck said to him, you must surrender the city and the forts to us. Krakow is now Polish. The commander was very reluctant to do this. Uh, so he was, again, as the German soldiers, shut into a room until the early afternoon when Roya's men had complete control over the whole city, and the celebrating crowds were in the streets singing. And then they let him go, and he drove away to leave Krakow, and for now, our story. The last days of the Habsburg Empire haven't received much attention in the historiography. Um, there are a number of reasons for that, and it, it's, it, it broadly comes down to the narratives, the dominant narratives that we about the Habsburg Empire. For a long time, the dominant narrative was one of doom. Most historians, encouraged by uh, writing in the aftermath of the Habsburg Empire, and also as well through looking at the national discord that existed in it before 1914, argued that already before the First World War, the empire was doomed to collapse. This was not a state that had a future. And of course, if you argue that that was already the case before the First World War, before that capitalism which swept through and changed forever Europe, then there's very little need to look at the last days of the fall of the empire. Now, in the last 20 years or so, that narrative has been challenged convincingly and changed. And now historians are much more inclined to stress that actually the Habsburg Empire did had strong and in many ways very modern legitimacy. It wasn't an empire reliant on traditional pillars of rule like monarchical prestige, the army, the church. For sure, they were important. But rather, this modern historiography has argued that this was a modern state, that it got its prestige, it got its legitimacy, it won those things in some ways rather like modern China does through development, through <coughs> progress, through the economic improvement of people's lives. The late 19th century was a period of massive bureaucratic and economic development right across the empire. Especially in the Austrian half of this empire, this so-called double monarchy, which was split into Hungary and Austria, as I expect most of you all know. Um, there was also a liberal constitution guaranteeing all sorts of freedoms, all sorts of rights. And stemming from this narrative that actually the Habsburg Empire was really healthy and it had a lot of legitimacy in 1914, the work that we have on the First World War generally focuses on the war, the broader war as a whole, not the last days of the empire, but rather the trajectory of the war itself to try and understand what it was about this war which undermined this now apparently healthy empire. Um, the modern research, the research of the last decade or so, has focused on the political repression carried out especially by the army in 1914 and early 1915. 
it's focused on the enormous casualties. Probably somewhere between 1.2 and 1.5 million Habsburg subjects were killed during the First World War, and those were only the military <coughs> figures. There were also a substantial number of civilians who died, too, um, as a result of a third area of investigation, <coughs> food shortages. And there's been some really excellent work unpicking the political consequences of malnutrition and starvation across the empire between 1915 and 1918. That new research, however, has still left this gap open because before said historians were focused on Hapsburg Empire as a doomed empire, so it wasn't worth looking at the last few days. The new research focuses on the empire as pretty healthy in 1914, so healthy in fact that it took a major event lasting years to bring it down. So the focus has been on what happened in those years rather than what happened in those last few days. There is one very detailed work um, undertaken by three Austrian historians with the help of an army of research students and PhDs, uh, which was published in 1974. But I think in the light of the new research, we can go somewhat further in thinking about the causes of the revolution and also the consequences of the revolution. And what I want to do tonight is really ask you two questions. The first is relatively simple, which maybe has some notice. I think that the Habsburg Empire's collapse, these last days, needs to be reconsidered. I think they need a new look in the light of recent historical. The second and third arguments that I've got explain why I think that. Um, my second argument is that understanding the last days of the Habsburg Empire actually can give us insight, broader insights, into how states collapse. Why do states collapse in different forms? Why do they collapse in different ways? What are the components, what are the factors in shaping state disillusion? <coughs> something that I'm becoming increasingly worried about in, the own, in my own state where I live. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, this has current interest, which is always the best type of history. <laughs> the third reason is that I think if you just take the collapse of the empire, then it raises all sorts of counterfactual questions about the subsequent course of Central European history, about the subsequent violence. Uh, I'll come on to that. I'll explain about what I mean by that as, as, as the lecture goes on. In terms of characteristics, um, I think there are two characteristics of the Habsburg Revolution, or rather revolutions, because the first characteristic is the sheer diversity of what happened in those last October days. Giving you an example of what happened in Krakow on the 31st of October, um, let's move to Budapest a week earlier. Um, Krakow was a coup. Budapest was actually a genuine revolution. On the 24th of October, <coughs> um, thousands of people come out onto the streets. On the 26th, a national committee, a Hungarian national committee, under a socialist, Count Kern, that kind of, um, he's also a, a, a moderate nationalist and a semi-moderate socialist, um, is formed to lead the revolution. So this, this revolution in Hungary starts with the people. Um, the National Committee comes two days after it starts. The following day, on the 27th of October, as a result of the calls of this committee, 30,000 people demonstrate outside the Hungarian parliament. That's more than demonstrated in St. Petersburg, or Petrograd, in February 1917. On the 28th, the revolution has its first blood sacrifice, its first victims, which every revolution needs uh, to legitimate itself. Uh, when police spanning, uh, manning barricades on a bridge shoot at an advancing crowd, and three, three protesters are killed and around 50 are wounded. The following <coughs> day, the police go over to the revolution, rather like what happened in Krakow. And then two days later, the garrison falls apart as well, and, and, and many soldiers either go over 
or mutiny. The military commander who's all for resisting the revolution phones Emperor Karl, um, Habsburg Emperor, and says, just send me one reliable regiment and I can put this down. And Karl says quietly at the other end of the telephone, I think enough blood has been spilled. And clearly, the, uh, the leader of the Na Hungarian National Committee is, um, is appointed Austrian minister president and, and, and declares Hungarian independence. It, it should be said that the, um, it's called the Aster Revolution because the, the revolutionaries wore asters, wore flowers, in their caps as a sign of their peaceful intentions. An impression somewhat undermined by the rifles with fixed bayonets, but um, nonetheless, one tries. They had all bases covered. In Prague, by contrast, there was again a different type of revolution. There was, if you like, an accidental revolution. Now, don't misunderstand me. Czech national elites had been preparing for this for some time, but when the revolution broke out, it took them by surprise. On the 20th of October, huge, huge crowds gathered in Wenceslas Square. But they weren't gathering for revolution. They were gathering because a rumor had gone out um, due to mistaken newspaper posters being, um, a, a newspaper extra being distributed and posted up on the walls, saying armistice. They believed that there, be, there was an armistice, and the armistice had been declared. Um, and this brought the people out. Um, people saying, up the Republic, uh, up Kramage, um, uh, one of the Czech leaders, key Czech leader, leader of the Czech National Council, and the Czech National Council then sprung into action um, and used this accidental mobilization to put pressure on the Habsburg military to cut a deal to keep peace and order, while also letting the Czech National Committee take control of food supplies. And in this, at this time, if you had control of food supplies and there were shortages across the empire, then you had control of the region. So, we have a lot of diversity. That's just three examples. I could, I could go on for longer, but you would have to sit for a lot longer as well. I don't want that. Um, we've got a coup in, 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 in Krakow. We've got a popular revolution in Budapest and an accidental revolution in Prague. Um, diversity. Diversity. And crucially, diversity which to some extent reflects local conditions. Um, it's perhaps not surprising that there was an upset of popular revolt in, in Hungary, because Hungary was, even by 1918, still much more repressive, had still less of a, a less well-developed civic society, um, political society, um, with political elites than in the further west in the empire. So diversity is, 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 is one characteristic. The other characteristic is bloodlessness. And we, we tend, when revolutions are bloodless, to sort of take it for granted. But otherwise, we assume revolutions are really, really bloody, and that's the way that they are. Um, it's an odd mindset. If we think about revolutions that have taken place before, just before the Habsburg Revolution, here in Ireland, in, in, in your city, in Dublin, the Easter Rising of April 1916, 380 people killed in that week half of them, in fact just over half of them, civilians. Large number for a city of 300,000. It's entirely possible that in the Habsburg Empire, your city of 300,000 had about similar, similar casualties to roughly the whole of the Habsburg Empire. Um, I'll come on to that in a minute. So, um, I, the other point of comparison I've got is the Russian Revolution, the so-called February Revolution. I put it in... Uh, inverted commas, because in our calendar, of course, it took place in March. Um, there, the official casualty rate for the March Revolution, February March Revolution, was 1,500 killed and wounded. Though that is probably an underestimate. Unofficial estimates go up to 1,500 killed, just killed, and perhaps six or six and a half. Now, I have searched through the records, I've searched through this, this big 1974 study of examples of um, massacres, of demonstrators being mown down, of executions. Um, and I'm 
not pleased to say, but it, it's, it's fortunate that I can say, given that we've got the ambassador of Slovakia here, that I have found one massacre in um, Szczyzhov, in, in what today is eastern Slovakia, where 31 revolutionary soldiers were executed. But that's the greatest single instance of death that I've got. Um, it's very difficult to find other larger examples of mass death. In Budapest, for example, where perhaps the military is willing to resist, the dead, as I've said, on that, on that, on that uh, 28th of October 1918 come to a total of three, plus around 50 wounded. And that's pretty much it. Um, Bosnian troops in the Budapest garrison uh, attacked more demonstrators a couple of days earlier as well. But overall, killed and wounded, we're talking under 100 casualties and, and killed in single figures. And that seems to be true across the, across the empire. We're talking double figures or at low, very low triple figures of, 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 of killed right across the empire. And that's interesting. That's really curious. I think that deserves explanation. How is it that when Ireland's week of revolt in April 1916 <coughs> is so bloody, when the Russian Revolution in February, March 1917 is extraordinarily bloody, how is it that this major change sweeping across <coughs> Central Europe, and remember, the Habsburg Empire had 11 different language groups. It covered one sixteenth of the European continent's surface. This was a big, big, big place, 260,000 square miles. How is it that casualties were so low? Now, the simple answer, at a very superficial level, is, is firstly, the military was either very careful or incapacitated. I can give you a couple of examples of that. Incapacitated, um, Budapest is a good example. The military commander wants to resist, but soldiers start to disobey him, and that's, that, that spirals out of control. Um, careful, good example is Prague, where the military is unwilling to take responsibility for a, for a bloodbath, and so rather agrees to do a deal to keep peace and order with the Czech National Committee, with the Czech revolutionaries in there. So that, that would be one kind of superficial explanation, what the military are doing. The second explanation is what the revolutionaries are doing. And this, this, is, this is interesting, because revolutionaries in the Habsburg Empire don't, unlike in Russia, generally focus on attacking officials. They don't focus on attacking people. Instead, the major aggression is directed towards symbols. Remember those double-headed eagles that are being unscrewed in, in Krakow? So this is, what, uh, this, this is where the anger is, is, is being expended on. Sometimes officers are attacked, but most usually only when they refuse to remove the Habsburg colours on their caps. If they remove their Habsburg cockades, then frequently they're actually quite safe. we need to step back and, and, and do a bit of deeper analysis. I think firstly we need to think of the Habsburg Revolution as international or at least transnational revolutions. You can't really talk about the Hungarian Revolution, the Czech Revolution, what happened in Krakow independently. You need to talk about them um, all together. The other thing and this is worth bearing in mind, is that there are, of course, incidents of severe violence during this time. Um, but crucially, that severe violence isn't aimed at servants of the old regime. Instead, it's the beginnings of national conflict, ethnic conflict, which will then sweep in much, much greater large numbers and on a much greater scale in 1919 and 1920, through Central Europe. A good example is the city of today Lviv at that time, Lvov or Lemberg to give it its Habsburg name, when on the 1st of November, the Ukrainian soldiers who made up the majority of the garrison seized control 
of the city in order to make it part of the Ukrainian Republic. Polish locals resisted. Um, they were joined by Poles further west from the cities of Przemysl and from Krakow. And over the three weeks of fighting um, that ensued, there were about 400 Polish casualties, probably about the same Ukrainian casualties. And then on top of that, a pogrom perpetrated by Polish locals and particularly as well by the Polish military of the, of the city's Jews, in which somewhere between 73 and 150 Jews were killed and many more raped and wounded. So there is for sure bloodiness, um, there is violence at this time, but the violence takes place not against the old regime. It's not part of the revolution against the old regime, rather it's part of a new conflict, if you like, for territory, for turf, to determine where these new nation states that are going to come out of the Habsburg Empire are going to exist, where their borders are going to lie. Let's talk a bit about the international uh, context, and about the transnational nature of these revolutions. Um, the revolutions broke out in October because the Habsburg Empire was in crisis actually in more crisis than the Russian Empire was a year and a half before. Perhaps the Empire's military was uh, spent, suffering from endemic desertion. Uh, perhaps the Empire was reliant by this point on the Germans to win the war, and the failure of the German spring offensive on the Western Front in France and Belgium doomed the Habsburg Empire in combination with the fact that in the summer of 1918, President Wilson of America and his allies in Britain and France say, uh, uh, acknowledge Czechoslovak claims to, to having a state, the statehood. Um, these two things, German failure and this shift in policy of uh, the Habsburg Empire's enemies to acknowledge Czechoslovak statehood and therefore implicitly um, pronounce a death sentence on the Habsburg Empire, these, these, these doomed them. Um, on 14th of September, Karl, the emperor, sends a peace request out, a request for peace negotiations, which everybody else ignores. And then on the night of 3rd to 4th of October, both he and the German government send out a new request for peace, for an armistice, on the basis of President Wilson's so-called 14 points, a list of points which in January 1918 the president of the US had said that peace should be based on. <coughs> that goes out to Wilson. Now, Wilson first deals with the Germans. Everything goes quiet for the Habsburgs uh, for the next nearly, well, nearly three weeks. But Wilson's answer arrives on the 20th of October. And he said that peace can now no longer be done on the basis of, of, the, uh, of the 14 points. The reason why the Habsburgs wanted this was the 14 points, in 14 points, Wilson had said that the Habsburg Empire should be reorganized on the, allowing more autonomy for the individual peoples who lived in it. So autonomy, not independence. And the Habsburg elites had hoped that this might permit the Habsburg Empire to continue. But on 20th of October, Wilson's reply comes through and he says, we can't do that anymore. We've acknowledged that the Czechoslovaks should have their own state. The, 14 points are, are dead and gone, they're defunct. And this triggers the revolution, of course, within, within uh, four days, Budapest goes into revolution, uh, pretty much immediately a national committee uh, is formed in Austria, and very soon after, uh, peripheral cities also fall into revolution. And these revolutions tumble off from each other. Again, remember, uh, remember what Chekhovna says in her diary, that, the, that diary which I quoted from right at the start of this talk. She's aware that there is revolution, there are upheavals in Prague. Um, and these upheavals, news of these upheavals spread and sponsors more upheavals and encourages revolutionaries, which then, and then news of these new upheavals and new revolutions go back to the other centers and, and are creating more upheaval and giving revolutionaries more confidence. To explain the lack of violence as well, we also need to think about the personalities in here. We, think, we think about the key readers. As I've said, drawing on this 
priorities for both the old regime and revolutionary leaders. But that doesn't explain why they should be. After all, the old regime had been carrying out all sorts of violence. It had an impressive, at least on paper, um, security forces at its disposal. Similarly, for the revolutionaries, deposing an empire which had existed for centuries was a major, major task. Violence had to be a possibility. Let's think about the personalities. First, in the left-hand corner, we've got Kaiser Karl. Now, he'd been emperor since 1916, um, and he was a weak man, a weak ruler for sure. Um, critics said of him that, uh, he, he was 29 when he ascended the throne in 1916, critics said of him that uh, you go to the royal court and you expect to see a 30-year-old man, but what you actually see is a youth who looks about 20, who thinks, talks, and behaves like a 10-year-old boy. <laughs> so not necessarily the man that you want to be in charge at a time where there is endemic unrest across the empire. He was also, in a way, committed to peace. He'd come to the throne in November 1916, saying that he wanted to bring peace to his peoples, although he hadn't achieved that in a year and a half. Next is his chief of general staff, General Arthur Arts von Straussenberg. Wonderful name. The Austrians have the best names. <laughs> um, now, unlike, so he essentially was commander of the army. I mean, Karl was formerly commander, but this, this, this man, Arts von Straussenberg, did the, uh, uh, did the nuts and bolts of command. Now, Arts von Straussenberg's personality is significant for three reasons. The first is that he was a fairly unpolitical soldier. His interest was the army. He liked to keep it separate as far as possible from the civilian population. <laughs> In that sense, he was very, very different from his predecessor, uh, General and then Field Marshal Franz Konrad von Hürzendorf, who in 1914 and 1915 had attempted to gain all sorts of control over the hinterland for the army, had interfered in domestic affairs, had introduced mass repression, had attempted <coughs> to change provincial heads um, with some success. Arthur Schlossenberg wasn't like that. He was reluctant to get too involved in the interior. Additionally, at this time, he was having to deal with, at the end of October, he was having to deal with a major Italian offensive, so his attention was diverted elsewhere. The only way he significantly played a role in October is that a year earlier, he redistributed and reorganized the Habsburg army in the hinterland, in the interior, in order to station units away from their home garrisons. And he'd done that with two aims in mind. The first was to move uh, troops away from their home populations, and then therefore away also from domestic anti-war propaganda. Czechs were moved to Hungary, Hungary Hungarians were moved to um, Bohemia, um, Ruthenian or Ukrainian soldiers were moved to Western Galicia, to Polish-speaking parts. Bosnian troops supervised Vienna. The second aim tied in with that was that nationalities with certain antagonisms against each other, Hungarians and Czechs, Ukrainians and Poles, were ordered to police each other. At the end of 1917, the Habsburg Empire, through this, becomes really what its critics had long unjustly claimed it to be, a prison of peoples, where antagonisms are used to uphold the Habsburg rule. The third major figure is this man, um, Professor Heinrich Lammer. It's always good to see an academic in a position of power. Um, he was a uh, professor of international law, um, and like many academics, he was also not entirely decisive either. Um, he was a pacifist above all. He was a pacifist. He, uh, and, and he came to power, um, he came to power saying that he didn't want to be head of a traditional Habsburg cabinet. Rather, he wanted to be a, um, he wanted to head up 
an executive committee of national councils. So in other words, he imagined a kind of federal system in the empire where the Czechs would have their own council, the Poles would have their own, the Ukrainians would have their own, and he would head up an executive committee of members of all of these councils. That was his hope. It didn't go anywhere. But he was not the type of man to, to say that harsh repression should be introduced. On the other side, we have the revolutionaries. And, and these are also interesting figures. Um, most of the national committees had some socialist representation. But these socialists were not socialists in the Bolshevik sense of socialists. They were generally far more moderate than that. They were nationalist. And often their elites came from the middle classes or even the gentry and nobility. So for example, um, Mihai Kirli, the head of the Hungarian national committee, was known as the Red Count. He was of no very, very wealthy family. Um, Ignacy Dashinsky, one of the members of the uh, liquidation committees, the Polish liquidation committee set up on the 28th of October in, uh, uh, in Krakow. He was from a gentry family. So revolution and violent revolution in a Bolshevik sense doesn't necessarily come naturally to these people. Um, indeed, they are like German revolutionaries in November 1919, German socialist revolutionaries, by and large very keen to avoid too much violence. They want to avoid violence as far as possible to keep order, to keep peace. Um, the Czech National Committee, which is headed up by Karol Kramaj, um, as I said, it goes out of its way to do a deal with the military in order to try and ensure that peace is kept in Prague and in the surrounding hinterland. That's also because, especially for the Czech National Committee, um, these middle-class politicians feel themselves in competition with the socialists. On the, uh, in in mid-September 1918, so just a couple of weeks before the accidental revolution in Prague, socialists have attempted to call a general strike with a view to getting a revolution going in a socialist direction. And that's quashed by a combination of military action and lack of support on the part of the middle class Czech National Committee. The other reason why there isn't very much violence is that these revolutionaries are able to benefit from an announcement made by Karl a couple of weeks before the revolutions break out. On the 16th of October, Karl introduces what he calls the People's Manifesto, although in reality nobody, with the possible exception of Ukrainians who don't have that many other options, accept it or want it. And this People's Manifesto is, says exactly what Lamash then tries to carry out. It declares that the Austrian side of the empire, the Hungarians will have nothing to do with it, the Austrian side of the empire will be reorganized on the basis of national self-determination, that key word put about by the Russian Revolution and encouraged too by Wilson, um, and that there will be Czech national committees will take control, Polish national committee will take control, a South Slav national committee will take control of its South Slav areas as well. And that causes considerable confusion. Um, it allows the national committees represented by these men, the Polish Liquidation Committee, the the, the Czech National Committee, the South Slav National Committee, it allows them to claim as they take control to the military that they are simply doing the emperor's bidding. The emperor has declared that the, the empire is to be reorganized into a federal system of peoples, and as the people's representatives, they are therefore taking control. And that reduces military resistance. It certainly causes a lot of confusion. Then again, I think we need to think a, a bit further, a bit deeper, to understand why these revolutions are so bloody, why they're somewhat different in different parts of the empire, and also why they are able to establish themselves so quickly, as well as so bloody. And I think for that, we need to go to this newer Habsburg literature, this newer history writing on the Habsburgs, 
and think about the nature of legitimacy, especially in the Austrian side of the empire, before the First World War. The Habsburg Empire, since the 1860s, had attempted to set its legitimacy on a new basis. What I mean by that, just to just be clear, is that it has attempted to, people, to win people's respect and allegiance in very modern ways. Rather than relying on old monarchical loyalties, it had instead um, introduced all sorts of new reforms, many of which had given increasing power to provinces, to cities, even to villages. From the 1860s onwards, there was a huge devolution of power. This had encouraged a new set of Habsburg officials, um, generally middle-class officials, from the localities in which they lived and worked. But the middle-class aspect is important because the middle classes were also the most nationalist class in the Habsburg. Additionally, as well, the Habsburg Empire's uh, bureaucracy, central bureaucracy, had massively expanded in the last decades before the First World War. In 1890, around four million crowns were spent on domestic administration. By 1911, that figure was over 80 million crowns, which gives you just a sense of how massively the Habsburg civil service had expanded. This resulted in worries before 1914 about nationalist figures, nationalist activists, getting into and subverting the civil, uh, um, the civil service. And it had also resulted in a lot of day-to-day -day governance and management in the Habsburg Empire being conducted at the local level by local people, educated local middle classes. That's particularly true of Austria, it's much less true in Hungary and in the lands that Hungary ruled, modern-day Slovakia, uh, parts of modern-day Romania, parts of modern-day Serbia, Croatia, and so on. And this then, I think, helps to shape the form of the Habsburg Revolution. If we go back to Krakow and we think about what happened on the 30th of October, one of the key stages of this coup, the day before, so the coup happens on the 31st of the day before, is this key meeting in the university where state officials are brought together, city officials are brought together and warned that there will be a coup, uh, <coughs> sorry, warned that there will be a coup, and their allegiance is asked for and won over. Of course, it's also important to bear in mind that that allegiance had moved to become more national in consequence of the war, in consequence of the sufferings of the war. Um, in the Czech lands, for example, local Czech officials had been obstructing the export of food out of Bohemia and out of Moravia for some time. Um, it's true to a lesser extent in Galicia as well. Um, there's less obstruction of food, although that does happen for the first time on the 28th of October in Krakow. But certainly, uh, earlier in February, civil servants and the populace have combined in a general strike to protest against Habsburg policy, to protest against food shortages. So you see, if, if you like, there are already nationalists in the, uh, there are already nationalists in local administration, which is very, very important in the Austrian side of the empire before 1914. Their nationalist loyalties aren't necessarily in conflict with imperial loyalties at that time, but across the war, that changes as nationalism and imperialism become conflicting ideologies. To a lesser extent, it's true of the army as well. I've got to be a bit careful here, but um, just as before the First World War, um, localities gained greater powers and people with nationalist sentiments as well as imperial sentiments come and dilute the civil service. So too, the Habsburg military begins to lose its monopoly, and particularly the professional, ideologically, imperially committed officer corps begins to lose its 
monopoly of arms already even before the First World War. Only to a minor degree, but it, it proves important. In 1910, for the first time, rifle associations are permitted in the Habsburg Empire. And that's exploited by Polish nationalists, particularly by this man, Józef Piłsudski. He sets up, uh, as, as to some other Polish groups, um, uh, rifle associations, which are in fact a cover for paramilitary associations. And these are incorporated into what are known as the Polish legions in 1914. These Polish legions contain about 20,000 men by 1917. And at first, the Habsburg Empire considers them a sign of strength. But these legions, their identity is Polish. It's, and their primary loyalty is to Poland not to the Habsburg Empire. And that becomes a problem particularly from mid-1917 when Piłsudski refuses to swear an oath to the German Kaiser, for complicated reasons which I won't go into now. Um, and these Polish legions come to be a source of dissension. Uh, they come to be a source of undermining the Habsburg Empire. And in all of the major protests, political protests that take place in the major Habsburg cities in 1918, Polish legionaries are playing some part. And Roya, the, uh, the military commander who leads the coup in Krakow, is one of these men. He's a Polish legionary. So what I'm suggesting is that on the Austrian side of the board, in order to understand, especially in Galicia, in order to understand why the coup is bloodless, and, sorry, why the revolution is bloodless, and why in Krakow it's a coup, we do need to think about both um, the devolution of power locally for the civil service and uh, the rise of non-imperial units, particularly the Polish Legion, during the war. There's, uh, to a lesser extent, this is also happening in the Habsburg army as a whole. Um, a terrifying proportion of the professional officer corps is killed in the first months of the First World. And to replace them, reserve officers, again, middle-class men, many of whom have nationalist sympathies, are recruited into the army. And that's not necessarily a problem at first, but as the war goes worse, as the suffering gets greater, um, imperial and national identities come increasingly into conflict. And we find, again, in the last days of the empire, during these days of revolution, um, Habsburg officers albeit to a, a less organized extent than the Polish Legion is capable of, play a key part in revolutions, in subverting garrisons, in stopping soldiers from shooting, um, in encouraging crowds. We also, I think, need to talk about the people, the wider population. I've already talked about the more recent historiography about how its emphasis on um, food riots, food shortages, and the riots that came out of them, on the political uh, problems that the monarchy faced, with the ideological challenges in the West with the Russian Revolution, and in the uh, uh, sorry, in the East with the Russian Revolution, in the West with President Wilson's idealism of, of self-determination and democracy. And I think that there are two ways broadly in which the peoples play a key part in these revolutions, either in the case of Budapest, where they get out onto the streets, or in the case of Krakow, where they accept and celebrate coups. <coughs> the first way is pacifism. Um, the Habsburg censor report that I started this lecture with stressed that the primary result, and this is very interesting given the sheer amount of violence that comes in the immediate years after the First World War, it stressed that the primary mood, the primary impact of the war was to make people pacifists. In letters time and time again we read it said, we read that this must not happen again, this huge slaughter of peoples must not happen again. On the other hand, conversely, the peoples themselves had undermined Habsburg rule. Food riots in the cities had undermined 
uh, Habsburg rule. Um, even more important, and I think this is especially for the army and its unwillingness to resist, the army in large parts of the empire had already lost control of the countryside. Desertion in the army was endemic in the regime. Around 230,000 deserters were recorded just in that year, and there may even have been more. And many of these men became so-called green carders, um, who hid out in hills and forests in the South Slav lands, or also in Galicia. And these men resisted arrest and undermined local authority, a little like the partisans of 1941 onwards would do during the Second World War, but with much less ideological motivation. I'll just give you one example from uh, the area around Przemysl in central Galicia. Um, on the, 11th, on the night of the 11th, 12th of June, 1918, the local police, the gendarmerie, uh, launched a sweep and captured some of these deserters. Later, just before midnight, that, the local post that had done this was surrounded by angry townsmen and soldiers demanding those deserters released. And when the commander came out and refused, they got even angrier, the commander fired a warning shot in the air, at which point the crowd surrounding this post opened fire. He was shot three times, he managed to crawl back into the building, and there he died, the commander, um, and the prisoners were released. And this is kind of the sort of thing that's going on, right? The, the army and the police no longer have control of large parts of the countryside. And I think that if, we need, if we're going to think about violence in the revolution, we also need to recognise that there's quite a lot of violence earlier in 19, before the revolution, that paves the way to some degree towards the bloodless coups and uprisings of November 1918. So by way of conclusion, why is this important? What's it tell us? And you might well say, in some ways, it's not that important. Because this, these days of relative bloodlessness are then followed by months and years of intense national competition and intense violence. They're followed by skirmishes with cities, in fact, brutal fighting with cities, like the of, of the type that I told you about when, we, when I was talking about Lviv, Lvov, Lemba, between Poles and Ukrainians. And that happens on a much bigger scale um, uh, later on in 1919 and 1920. Um, there are pogroms, pogroms of Jews in Poland, Poland, pogroms of Germans in Czechoslovakia. There are invasions, uh, invasions of um, Hungarian territory by Romanians, by Czechoslovakian troops. Um, there's huge fighting between uh, the Poland, uh, between the new Poland and the Soviet Union. There is ideological warfare, new revolution in Hungary. There's a, there's a hard left revolution in the spring of 19, uh, in the spring of 1919. And within all this ideological turmoil and national competition, people are displaced, people are killed. There are floods of refugees going backwards and forwards over the new and unstable national borders. The peace, or relative peace, at any rate, relative bloodlessness of October doesn't last. But nonetheless, I think that it's important. And I think that it's important in two ways. The first is that by looking at the Habsburg Empire as a whole and thinking about how these revolutions play out in this very diverse empire in very diverse ways, we're able to understand a little better about why revolutions are more or less bloody. And I think one of the things that we can find is that states which have built up significant legitimacy, especially at the local level, even as they lose that legitimacy and collapse, the remnants are still able to keep some local peace. That's very clear if you compare the Habsburg Empire, particularly the Austrian side, with what happens in Russia in March 1917, where those local loyalties uh, of, of officials, the local respect that officials have, simply doesn't exist. The second reason why it's important is that I think it opens a whole host of counterfactuals. 
if there was peace in October 1918, if that could have been maintained, then possibly the subsequent aftermath may not have needed to be so bloody. I'd argue that one of the reasons why, the, uh, why Europe falls apart is not simply to the downward collapse of empires, but it's also due to extraordinarily irresponsible policy on the part of victorious Western allies. Irresponsibility in permitting new allied nation states, Czechoslovakia and Romania particularly, to invade the rump states of peoples that were blamed for the <coughs> Austria and <coughs> Hungary. Um, and beyond that, I'd argue that it shows the importance of some international immediate intervention into revolutions, especially those to be bloodless revolutions like that of October 1918, in order to keep the peace subsequently. I'll leave it there. Thank you very, very much for your patience.